0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text-raised message comes from the Gospel reading of Matthew, chapter 15, as you heard a few moments ago. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, soon the summer will be over, and in the next few weeks we'll be drawing a close to the series of Jesus by the Sea. Now, we've seen lots of miracles and a number of teachings, and today is no different. With a miracle that is unique for a number of reasons. First of all, the miracle that is recorded in today's gospel resembles the miracle that Elisha did that you heard about in the Old Testament reading. The miracles of prophets like Elijah and Elisha bore witness to the fact that God had called them to be prophets, to be his speakers of his word. Jesus's miracle also gives evidence to the fact that he was God's prophet. But it goes beyond that. Inasmuch as Jesus surpasses the miracles of all the Old Testament prophets, his demonstrate that Jesus is the greatest of all of the prophets, even greater than Moses. His miracles demonstrate that he was sent by God the Father to do the Father's will. They were, therefore, part of his messianic ministry. Secondly, interestingly enough, this is the second time that Jesus has done some multiplying of some bread and fish which we heard the other one a few weeks ago. Now, this second recording can raise some questions in our minds. Like, if he could multiply the food once, well, why did he have to do it a second time? One shows that he can, and, you know, that should be good enough. Or was, this, was there a different point that was being made with each of these two miracles? There are some people out there that will tell you that these miracles are, in fact, the same. That they are no different. They were just recorded multiple times because of how similar they are. However, the differences show us that these are two separate miracles and may help explain why Jesus performed a similar miracle a second time. So I'll run you through the differences as quickly as I can while not missing anything. All four Gospels include the feeding of the 5,000, whereas only Matthew and Mark include the feeding of the 4,000. Obviously, you can see the number of people is different in these miracles as well. Also worth mentioning is that Matthew, an original disciple of Jesus, who was there with him at both of these miracles, includes both stories. So that should be good enough, but we'll keep going. In Mark, it is Jesus who asked the disciples about both of these feedings, asking them how much was left over for the 5,000 and the 4,000. There were 12 baskets with the 5,000, and there were seven baskets with the 4,000. We won't get into the size differences, but it's possible that they were different sizes. And the crowds were fed were different numbers. They were fed with Five loaves and two fish with the 5,000, and seven loaves and a few fish with the 4,000. Also significant is the different locations these miracles took place at. The 5,000 took place near Bethsaida, as Luke tells us, and would have been inhabited predominantly by Jews, and that would have been Jesus's main audience. Mark tells us the 4,000 took place in the region of the Decapolis, which is the southeast part of the Sea of Galilee, and would have been inhabited predominantly by Gentiles. And that would have been Jesus' main audience. Mark will tell us that Jesus blessed not only the bread, but also the fish as well, compared to just once at the beginning for the feeding of the 5,000. Now, Jews would have been accustomed to a blessing in prayer at the beginning of a meal— whereas Gentiles would not have been. So the double blessing for each part could have emphasized the fact that it is God who supplies all of our needs. Before this miracle happens, you heard that Jesus was healing the crowd, right? They were bringing all kinds of people in. Jesus is healing them all. Matthew, as you heard in our gospel today, tells us that these people glorified the God of Israel. If they were Jews... The people of Israel, Matthew probably wouldn't have needed to include, of Israel. Finally, one of the keys to this whole miracle taking place is the fact that Jesus has compassion on the crowd. With the 5,000, Jesus saw those people as sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. And then it's getting late, and the disciples wanted to send them away so that you didn't have to feed them. With the 4,000, Jesus has compassion on them because they had gone so long without eating. Since for three days they were coming to receive miracles from Jesus and possibly hear him teach. And since he was leaving soon, he knew that they would journey back to their respective homes, and he didn't want any of them to pass out from a lack of food. Now, it wouldn't be like us to not talk about the disciples and their response to Jesus. In the feeding of the 4,000, this is what they say. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, you can view their response in one of two ways. The first would be, the disciples still don't get it. Jesus, how are we going to feed them? If you remember, the last time... Jesus said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. He doesn't say that this time because the emphasis is on Jesus' compassion for the crowd because they haven't eaten in three days and their time is coming to an end and he doesn't want to send them away and have any of them faint on their way back home. So it's possible that disciples hear that Jesus wants to feed the crowd and they still don't get it. Because if they did, they would have just said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, you give them something to eat. Like last time, remember? If you take this first interpretation of what the disciples were thinking, Jesus' response then would come from a place of, Oh, you of little faith, why don't you still get it? All right, let me show you again. How many loaves do you have? The second interpretation of their response is to say, the disciples remember the previous miracle and Jesus' efforts, and they understand that they are not able to do what Jesus did. And so they say, Jesus, it's impossible for us to do this, which would lend itself very nicely to the response we've been hearing a few times in this series, and that is with God, all things are possible. If you take that in second interpretation as what the disciples were thinking, Jesus's response would make sense because he would essentially be saying, you're right, this is not possible for you, so how many loaves do you have? It's also possible that within the group of disciples, some fell into the category of both of these responses. Maybe it was doubting Thomas and traitor Judas who still didn't get it, while walking on water Peter did. However, what matters in this story is not whether the disciples got it, because this wasn't about them. It was about the crowd, the mostly gentile crowd. What we see with this miracle is that Jesus not only cares about the physical needs of the people, that he not only cares about the Jews, but that he also cares about the Gentiles. And the same blessings that he wants for the Jews, he wants for the Gentiles as well. The same message that is preached to the Jew, that he is the bread of life, is for the Gentile as well. And ultimately, there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles. Both are sinners in need of a Savior. God calls them all, and many will follow him, especially the Gentiles. Just look through the book of Acts, or look through any volume on church history. All true believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, make up the one true church, have been gathered by his Spirit through the preaching of his word. This is fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because from Abraham's offspring came Jesus. And through Christ, all people are blessed because of his death and his resurrection, because of his compassion, because of his love. For all people. The same way he felt about the Gentile crowd, he feels about you. Jesus looks at you and has compassion on you. That's why he came, because he cares for you. He knows that you are a sinner in need of saving, even if you don't know it yourself. He knows that you are a sheep without a shepherd. He knows that you are someone who, in your sin, does not believe in the God of Israel, does not believe in the one true God. He knows that in your sin, there are consequences for your sin, punishments that need to be administered, God's wrath that must be satisfied. The sentence that each of us deserve for our sin is death. It's physical death, but it's also eternal death. It's hell. And Jesus looks at you and has compassion on you. He loves you and does not want you to suffer for eternity. He does not want you to endure the punishment of hell. And so his compassion leads to his passion on the cross as he graciously takes hell for you. Not because you've done anything to be spared, to be saved, but because there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. And so the only way for you to not endure the punishment of death, of hell, is for someone else to take your place. And Jesus has compassion on you, and he takes your place. He is the substitute for you, the substitutionary atonement. You are the sheep without a shepherd, and he is the good shepherd who becomes the sacrificial lamb on your behalf. The perfect Son of God dies for you, for your sins, for the sins of the whole world, because it was the only way. The only way for God's wrath to be satisfied was for God to put that wrath on himself. And because Jesus was the perfect lamb and satisfied the wrath of God, he rose from the dead, proving that he has defeated sin, death, and the devil once and for all. And he gives you that promise that all who believe in him will have eternal life. But remember, you in your sin do not believe. So he has sent his Holy Spirit to work in your life, to work through the word of God and to work through his sacraments. To be present in baptism, bestowing faith on those who are brought before him. To work through the hearing of the word to increase your faith. Not because you did anything to deserve it. Rather, it is a gift. A gift of his grace. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because Jesus has compassion on you, he gives you himself once again in his supper, giving you his body and his blood for your forgiveness, for your salvation. And so God takes you, the sinner that you are, and he changes you. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he redeems you. He brings you out of the death that you deserve and into the life that he has for you planned. From before you were born, through the waters of baptism, he calls you and makes you his own beloved child. He clothes you with himself, with his righteousness, with his perfection, so that he no longer sees sin reigning over your life, but he sees Christ living in you. And in his supper, he feeds you with his body and his blood because he is the bread of life. And he doesn't just care about our earthly life and our physical needs. He cares about our eternal life. And that is of greatest importance. As Paul writes in Philippians, God wants every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. To believe in him and have eternal life. Yes, God cares about our physical well-being. That's why in the Lord's prayer we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Everything that we need to support this body and life, we ask God to provide for us. And even more, he cares about our spiritual well-being, and that's why we pray, forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He has forgiven our sins through Jesus' death on the cross. He will not lead us into temptation, and he has delivered us from evil because of Jesus' resurrection. And he will give us final deliverance when he calls us home to heaven. Grant this, Lord, unto us all. Amen.